Well, uh, one announcement this morning. Uh, you can look on our website for our Christian education classes. We have several going on. This week, we're starting one, Parenting the Love and Logic Way. And uh, by the way, for those of you that are live streaming, welcome. Many of our parents who have children are not here because we've asked them to hold off and give us time to get used to working this through while we figure out how to, what to do with the children. So uh, that applies to you if your parents sitting at home watching, so sign up. And if you're a grandparent, you want to learn how to parent all over again and how to grandparent grandchildren, we got 10 of them, it's a blast. Then uh, take the class as well. Okay, what a year. It's been a crazy year, hasn't it? Start off the year talking about impeachment, pandemic, quarantine, racial tension, looting, a highly contentious election. How many of you are tired? I'm tired. I'm tired. Um, I want to take some time today and I want to share with you my thoughts on how to vote. I've been here as your pastor for seven and a half years. My responsibility under Ephesians 4 is to equip you to teach you how to do the work of ministry. What is the work of ministry? What is it? Oh, a little bit of it occurs right here, just a little tiny bit right in here. But this isn't the work of ministry. You see, the work of ministry is really out there. It's what you guys do every day with people. That's really the work of ministry. It's showing people what it means to love others, for example, It's showing what it means to be people of integrity. I've said many times that the kingdom, uh, we have a kingdom within an earthly kingdom, but the kingdom can only be seen by looking at us. There's no billboard out there about the kingdom of God, none at all. Christians all over the world are living out their faith as, and one of their responsibilities is to show this world what the kingdom looks like. Um, through the love that we have for others, the integrity with which we live lives, the decisions that we make, that sort of thing. And so um, that's my job, is to equip you to do that. You see, not only are we tasked with creation care, we're also tasked with culture care. We care about our culture. This is our home. But you know what? I'm also an American and proud of it. You know why I'm proud of it? This is not a sermon on nationalism, by the way. The reason why I'm proud of it is because Genesis 11, God created the nations for his glory, his own glory. This will be a sermon one day to help you understand this, why he created it, just for his own, his own glory. And in Revelation, at the end of the Bible, in Revelation 21 and 22, every nation is present in eternity for his glory. Once again, his pleasure. And so uh, I am proud to be an American, American Christian. My friends in Nepal, where I teach, they're proud to be Nepalese. My friends in Mozambique, Africa, they're proud to be uh, Mozambique. My friends in Haiti, they're proud to be Haitian Christians. My friends in India, they're proud to be Indian Christians. And that's the right thing to do. Okay? Because we all have the same Lord. And so there's nothing wrong with us. God made nations on purpose. And so there's nothing wrong with being American. I got tired of people making me feel guilty about being American. So I got my plates changed to an honorably discharged veteran and put a U.S. Navy on the back, sticker on the back, just to tell people I'm proud of who I am and what I've done. I believe in this country. 
I believe in the creation that God has made. This is not bad. What's bad is the sin and corruption that defines it. That's what's bad. The evil that penetrates this. I'll be very honest with you. This is a tough sermon. I've wrestled all week with it. Uh, Honestly, I didn't sleep much last night. I woke up thinking about how to share my heart with you and my thoughts. So it's a little different sermon than what we usually have. Usually I'm taking, taking you through a passage and helping you understand something. For seven and a half years, I've worked very hard as your pastor to bring you this wonderful, wonderful book right here in a theological way, in a theological way that brings life to you. That's been my goal for seven and a half years. I know that some of you will disagree with me today, so I hope that you'll extend me grace for seven and a half years and one week, even if you disagree with what I'm about to say. Um, Another reason I've struggled with it, I struggled with the title, originally titled, because you know we're doing a series leading up to this election. Why would we want to? Why we talked about why would, why would we want to have a repentant heart as a nation, as a church? Why would we want to love others? Why would we want to engage in civil discourse? We talked about all these different things. So I originally titled, Why Would We Want to Trust God This Week? But that's too passive, because that implies you don't really have to do anything. And I don't really believe that. I actually believe that you have a right to vote, and because of that, you have an obligation to vote. You should get out and vote. So I wrestled through the title over and over again, and I finally titled it this way. Why would we want to partner with God for the sake of our nation? Why would we want to do that today? So let me begin by talking about God's sovereignty. You see, at the heart of this is tension because we believe God is sovereign. And I'll tell you what I mean by that in just a second, what the Bible says about it. But we also believe in free will. And this is one of those places in life where they come together like this and like this as we partner together to create something better, much better. So listen to these words on sovereignty. This is what the Bible says. I'm not going to read the verses to you. If you want, we can uh, talk later and I'll get them for you. He decides who is rich and who is poor. He says that. That alone is my decision. He decides who is rich and who is poor. Now I want you to think about national events in light of this. Why would God make some rich and some poor? Is it so that the rich can enjoy life at the expense of the poor? No. Oh no, not at all. No, 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 no. You see, what happens, let's take the arguments of culture today and take them to their logical end. Let's assume we remove the gap between the have and the have-nots. What happens? We don't need each other. Diversity is a core principle of Christianity in every way that you can measure. How does the Bible start? Man and woman. Two different genders. Diversity right off the bat. Spiritual gifts, there's diversity. Ethnicity, there's diversity. Created the nations. And so everywhere you look, there's diversity because it's diversity that serves as a magnet to draw us together. So some of you out there are very wealthy, and I thank the Lord for that. I thank the Lord. He didn't make you wealthy so that you could sit back and ignore everything. No, he made you wealthy. He blessed you so you could bless others. That's what draws us together, is that we are always to be looking outside of ourselves. I'm blessed so that I can bless others. I'm forgiven so I can forgive others. I'm loved so I can love others. I'm taken care of so I can take care of others. I have some wealth so I can share it with others. That's why. This is the nature of the kingdom within culture. This is what the church should be. Not not harnessing all of our, hoarding all of our stuff, but sharing it for the goodness of our creation, 
our culture, if you will. So he decides who is rich and poor. Exodus 3. Moses says there, I don't want to talk to Pharaoh. I'm not very good at speaking. And God said, wait a minute. Who made a person's mouth? Who made a person blind? Who makes a person able to see? Who makes a person deaf? Is it not I, the Lord? I alone get to choose that. Think about that. Remember the story of Jesus when he healed the blind man? The disciples asked him, who sinned? There's an assumption within the cultural setting of that day. Did he sin or his parents sin that he was born blind? And Jesus said, neither. This was God's work so that God could show you what glory looks like. By trusting him. He makes that decision. He decides, we're going to see more of this in just a minute. He decides which nation to raise up and which nation to destroy. He said, that alone is my decision. I get to choose that. And history is replete with examples all through the Old Testament of how he did that. Even 1 Peter 5 says he decides who comes to our church. Elders, shepherd the flock of God allotted to your charge. That's the verb to cast lots. In other words, you're sitting here because the Holy Spirit somehow attracts. It's not anything I did. It's the Holy Spirit brought you here. And so as elders, sometimes we, we have people here that we don't like, and I have to remind them, that's okay. They're here by the Holy Spirit. We don't have to like them. Not all of you are likable. I know that surprises you, doesn't it? You know what I'm thinking. No, no, it's the Holy Spirit at work. He decides how to use evil kings when the southern kingdom um, violated over and over and over and over again what he asked of them. He said, I'm going to bring the Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar and they're going to do very terrible things to your families, your wives and your children. They, he is my servant to do my bidding. God chooses that before he fragmented the nation and split them all up, before he destroyed the northern kingdom. He decides how to judge a nation. Jeremiah 12, verse 17. Here's what it says. If any nation does not listen, I will completely uproot and destroy it, declares the Lord. He decides how to do that. Romans 13, this is Paul a little bit later on. Now, um, I'll come back to this in a minute, but Romans 13, he's talking about the government. And he repeats this verse, he repeats it twice. It tells you how important it is. In the Jewish mindset, they would repeat things if they thought it was important. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. He said it twice. Remember what Jesus said when, when Pilate said to him, I, don't you know I have the authority and the power to save your life or execute you? Jesus said, no, you don't. <laughs> you only have the authority given to you by God. That's all you get. But then he, Paul goes on here with a warning. Consequently, um, by the way, Peter and James both repeated this warning. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against God, what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. So at one level, it sounds like we're just supposed to obey blindly. But that's not the case. It's actually not the case. We are to be submissive to the government because they're there for a reason. They're there for God's agent to bring about uh, peace and security. They're there on purpose. What happens when they don't do that? Then we have some obligations. 
You see, because on the other side of this sovereignty is another question. And should we remain passive? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Because God does give us free will for a reason to act, to live out our faith. Listen to these stories. Okay, here's the other side of that equation. Moses and Pharaoh. Moses goes to Pharaoh and said, you've enslaved these people and you're treating them harshly. You're abusing them. Let them go. At the risk of his life, he stood up to the top guy in Egypt. In 1 Kings 17, you have Ahab and Elijah. Elijah stood up to Ahab and said, you are abusing these people. Stop it. Stop it. That's the famous story of Mount Carmel, where Ahab and Jezebel, they refused to, uh, to do that. And they loved the life of luxury and high taxes and hurting people, and they loved all that. And so he called all of the... Uh, he said, well, bring your gods to Mount Carmel. We'll see what happens. So he brought all the gods. It's one of the great stories of the Bible. It makes me laugh every time I read it. And says, okay, put your things in. Have your gods consume the sacrifice. And they, they start dancing and calling on the name of their gods. And they start cutting themselves. And he just sits there and laughs. And it said, where's your God? Perhaps he's hard of hearing. Maybe he can't hear you. Maybe your gods are too busy doing other things. And then he says, okay, now it's my turn. Put the sacrifice on the altar. Dump water on it. Dump water on it again. Dump water on it again. Flood it. Just flood it. And, and God's fire comes down and consumes it so that he could show Ahab who the true God was. That was the purpose of it. But he stood up to him. You have John the Baptist and Herod. John the Baptist stood up to Herod because he, he uh, well, he did several things that were bad. But one of them that John the Baptist confronted him on was he stole his brother's wife. Mark 6. Cost him his life. John the Baptist was beheaded. You have Jesus and the Pharisees. Woe to you hypocrites. Harshest words in the Bible. Oh, you look like whitewashed tombs on the outside, but on the inside, you're full of destruction and decay, selfishness. You're hurting people. You're the blind leading the blind. Woe to you, you hypocrites. You have Peter, John, and Acts 4. They're sharing the gospel. They're sharing Christ in the temple, and, the, and they beat them. The, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin brings them in and beats them. And they said, don't do this anymore. Don't preach this word. And they said, you tell us. Should we obey or should you or should we obey God? We're going to obey God. They stood up to them because they're stopping them. Reminds me of Deuteronomy or Joshua. I'm sorry. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That was their firm conviction. Acts 16, you have Paul and the leaders of Philippi. They haul him in and they beat him. He was a Roman citizen. They weren't allowed to do that. They just didn't know he was a Roman citizen. They thought he was a simple Jew. And they thought he was a, a Jew, and so they beat him without due process. The punishment for that was death for the magistrate under Roman law. So the next day they come and say, okay, you're free to go. And he goes, yeah, I don't think so. You just beat me, a Roman citizen. I own you. Let me tell you about Jesus. So you see, we have these two sides where we have to figure out how to walk as Christians in a very broken world. I don't have to tell you that. You guys are living it. And yet submit to the sovereignty of God because God claims, I have the sovereign right to be God. You may not like it. Get over it. I have the sovereign right to be God and do what I want. But I want you to learn to reflect my love to this lost world. Oh, you're going to make mistakes. You are. You are going to sin. You're going to do all that. And guess what? I'm going to show grace and forgive you. I've said many times up front, I don't care what sin is you struggle with as a pastor. The only reason I care to know is because I want to know the impact and how it's impeding your love for the Lord. That's what's important to me. I have heard it all. 
in 43 years. I actually believe that. Don't think I could be surprised anymore. So we have the right and the obligation to act within culture, including voting properly. And what does that mean? I'm reading a book. Uh, You know, I'm an academic. And uh, so I called a bunch of my friends that have their PhDs and said, Mine's not. Mine's the New Testament. I called and said, if I want to read a book on, a, on a religious liberty, what would I read? They all recommended this book, Sacred Liberty, America's Long, Bloody, and Ongoing Struggle for Religious Freedom. It's a fascinating book. I've absolutely thoroughly enjoyed it. But let me tell you some of the things I've learned from this book. The church, from the very beginning of our country, has been involved. Been involved. It's common to think that church and state means I can't say anything up here. That is not true. I can tell you exactly who I think you should vote for if I want to. Okay, that's my choice. You see the Constitution, if you haven't read it, download a copy and read it. It doesn't say anything about separation of church and state. That comes from a letter many, many years later, private letter. What it says is the government cannot interfere with our freedom to, to uh, worship, the worship the Lord the way we choose. So it's not about keeping us out of government. It's about keeping the government out of us. That's the Constitution. So I can get up here and say as much as I want about it. In fact, let me just say, uh, we have one of our own, Bruce Butler, one of our elders right here running for county commissioner. And I'm voting for him. And I would encourage you to do that as well. I know this man. I know his heart. I know his values. And he's going to support what I'm saying in just a minute about how we, how we choose to vote. I would encourage you to do that. So the purpose of the Constitution is to keep the government out of the church, not to keep Christians out of the government. So that's one of the things I learned is the church has been involved in day one. Half of the original or more, uh, half of the original um, congressmen and senators were, were pastors. And the founding fathers, many of them were Christians. They wanted involvement. They wanted engagement. So it's, it's, it shouldn't, we shouldn't say, let's keep politics out of church. No, it's just the opposite. Politics is about society. That's what the actual Greek word politouo means. It's about culture and society. We should talk about culture and society. That's politics. We should have open dialogue and discussions about what we agree with and what we don't agree with. We should do it civilly, peacefully. We should do that. You know, I was talking to the students, high schoolers, uh, a couple years back in our high school, and we got on the whole question of morality. And so I asked them... um, should we, should, we, should we or could we legislate morality? And they said, no. I said, okay, let's do away with the murder laws then. Isn't that legislating morality? To my shock and surprise and great blessing, I've never had a master's or doctoral student do this. That's how dumb they are. I had a teenager say, wait a minute. I'm not sure the murder laws are legislating morality. And I realized I was sitting in the presence of greatness. Something I don't have here. That was a joke. Sometimes I have to tell you guys when to laugh. And I said, okay, what do you see happening? And he said, it seems like the very fundamental issue of morality is changing a person's heart. And a law doesn't do that. It just legislates behavior. It's brilliant. And I said, okay, then they all got it. Some of you guys are sitting out there, we're there. And I said, uh, then how does morality make it into the world? The church, the people of God, that's how. It's the only way. 
I've spent three decades studying world history in the, in the cultural backgrounds to this wonderful book. And you know what? I have not found a single example. Not one. There may be one. I may surprise myself one day, but I doubt it. I've not found a single example where culture came to the right conclusion morally. Not one. You see, the premise behind Christianity is that the world has fallen. And so my personal interpretation of this is whenever God steps into culture, through a spoken word or through action, he does so for the purpose of fixing something that's broken. 1500 B.C., rape was a part of culture, and he had to change it. No, rape's not acceptable. So he didn't start by just outlawing it. We've learned a long time ago that doesn't work. I mean, we passed the Civil Rights Amendment in 1964 and still haven't got it figured out. So just saying no doesn't solve the problem. He had to change the hearts of people. So what he had to do first before he dealt with, uh, with uh, all of the sexual abuses of that ancient era was begin to convince people that women aren't property. They have dignity. They have the same dignity as men because they're both made in his image. He had to change that before he could deal with the other issue. And so the Bible, when you put it in the order that is written, it's just one long story of God stepping in and fixing very broken things in culture and introducing entirely new and fresh concepts. Culture is always going to take us off the cliff. And when God speaks, he does the opposite. He fixes what's broken. Now, some of you, that may be a surprise. I'd love to have more conversations with you, what that looks like here. But that's what's happening. And so what the great gift of Christianity, Christianity in today's world, is thought of religiosity and control. We want to control people. No, I don't want to control you. I have enough trouble controlling myself. You know, I had four kids. I'm done with parenting. You know, they're all grown now. Praise Jesus. <laughs> no, I don't want to control anybody. What I want to do is walk the road with you and help you think through the hurts and the brokenness that are the, product, the byproduct of the world because that's what God cares about, creating a people who love him and are his own. And so what happens is morality, this is the greatest gift of Christianity to the world. We brought morality and stabilization of morality to the world table. You can trace the morality of the world century by century for 5,000 years, and the pattern is still there. It all depends on who the king or emperor or who's in charge, who has the power, who has the army. They decide what morality is. And Christianity brought morality from the outside and stabilized the world. That's why the Western nations, which have been most influenced by Christianity, share similar moral principles. Okay, you may think it's it being a, a murderer is innate to the human nature. It's not. Go talk to the cannibals. You may think that raping a woman is innate to human nature. It's not. Go with me to India and see the see the states where it's still acceptable. That's how you claim your prize, if you will. Come with me and see it. You may think that a mother giving up her child to uh, uh, to the sex trade. Is, is innately, it's, it's not part of, our, it's part of our nature not to do that? No, come with me and see some of the Hindu villages where they do that for a living. No, it's not innate to our nature. It has to come in from the outside. And that is the greatest gift of Christianity, not controlling your lives, but establishing a moral base from which we can all derive happiness. Okay, 
so I argued that with these um, with these high schoolers that primary purpose of the church is to be the conscience of the nation to bring goodness to bring good things as Jesus said everyone will you know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another to be peacemakers to be people of a heart that want to help people to care for others that's the heart of Christianity but listen to what Jeremiah again a little bit later in Jeremiah because he's, he's, he has a nation that is rebellious and they refuse to listen. It's Jeremiah 18.7. This is God speaking. If at any time, okay, this is not unique to the ancient world. If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. He's choosing what he's doing here and if at another time i announce that a nation or kingdom is to be built up and planted and it does evil in my sight and does not obey me then i will consider the good i intended to do for it you see that's the pattern we are to live in accordance with god's word now many of you are raised in traditions where it's just a bunch of rules this is not a bunch of rules this is the story from beginning to end of how god interacts with a fallen people to bring about goodness that's what it is it's really a love story from beginning to end, oh, it has really nasty stuff in it. But it's not because God asked for it. It's because we flipped him off. <laughs> That's really what's going on here. And it's an incredible story. So we are to live in accordance with God's word. So let me tell you some suggestions here of what I think you should not base your vote on. Okay? You should not base your vote on personality. I can't tell you how tired I am of people saying, I can't vote for Trump, he's an idiot. Okay, he may be an idiot. I'm not going to argue with that. But that's not the reason to vote or not vote. When I had all the surgeries, some of you went through, and the cancer in my stomach, bladder, and esophagus, I personally didn't care what kind of guy my surgeon was. I wanted him to fix it. Okay? If you want a president or a leader who is a good leader and is also what you think of personality-wise... We got one. His name is Jesus. We already exist in a kingdom. We have a good one. And one day, all the evil and corruption around us will be dealt with. By the way, I have people saying the same thing about Biden. It's not one-sided. There's no way I could vote for that guy. He's a complete idiot. What a basis for voting. We're not in high school anymore. It's not a personality contest. Right? That's not it at all. How about this? Social media. Oh, for you young people, just stop social media for three days. Just stop it. I do it for entertainment. I read it every day, all day long. I just laugh my head off at the stupidity of people, the, uh, the agendas that flow to the service. Just remarkable to me because I didn't have that capability 40 years ago. I'm loving it, but I don't take it seriously. Okay? Don't vote based on what you find in social media. Don't vote based on what you find in the press. Don't vote based on sound bites. Okay? I can tell you right now, I've said really stupid things up here in front of you. You're very gracious, and you allow me that grace. Sometimes I get emails, go, did you really mean that? Did I actually say that? That's what happens when you're speaking publicly. Okay? Both candidates have said really stupid things. Let's just be honest. Don't vote. Don't. Don't vote based on rhetoric. Okay? Don't vote based on rhetoric. Don't vote based on your friends, your family tradition, 
please don't vote based on your personal comfort. Okay? Here's what we should vote on. Biblical principles. That's what we should vote on. Now here's where I'm about to get tomatoes thrown at me. Let me give you one example. You don't have to agree with it. I personally think abortion is wrong. I'll tell you why. Because most of the prophets leading up to the destruction of the northern kingdom and the prophets leading up to the destruction of the southern kingdom after Israel was divided, God said very similar things. My charge against you is you did not care for those who were powerless to care for themselves. I don't want to find myself fighting against God. So here's the question I have for you. You get to decide. It's your conscience. It's not mine. I already have mine. I'm just being honest with you about me. Do you, do you make your decision on abortion based on biblical principles? On philosophical principles? On cultural principles? What? I asked the high schoolers during that time. They said that they, they thought abortion was wrong except in the, uh, except in the case of uh, rape and incest. I said, okay, why that? Because the mother has no control. I said, all right. Then what? What are the criteria that you use to decide that one human who has no control gets to terminate the life of another human who has no control? I just want to know what the criteria is. They didn't have any. I ask you the same. What is your basis for deciding how you're going to vote on that? And this is going to be true with every one of these cases. Are you going to look for biblical principles? Or are you going to look for the cultural principles and decide which ones you like? I can't answer that. You have to answer it. I'm just raising the question. So here's what I suggest. Number one, pray for God's wisdom. Right out of the gate. Just pray. Just stop and pray. Nancy and I did that. We sat down with all the stuff and looked at all the propositions and everything. And the vote and who the people were. We stopped first and prayed for God's wisdom. Second of all is we looked at each proposition, made sure we could understand it. That in itself is a feat sometimes. You know? And then we said, does it match our biblical values? Okay? And then we did this. We didn't listen to what Trump or Biden said. Go to the website, the Republican website, and the Democratic website. Go to both and look at what's in writing as far as their, their commitments and their values. Don't listen to the people that are talking. They're trying to sell you something. Go look at it and say, do these values match my values? Don't vote based on personality. We're not in high school. This is our country we're talking about. This is our country. And our country is big enough to influence the world. By the way, every country influences the world, not just us. Do that. Okay, now, just I'm about done. Just a couple more principles, or a couple more verses, just to show you some couple of amazing things. When I read to you Romans 9, Paul wrote that, and that was in the early part of Nero's career. Nero at that time was sane, listening to his mother, Agrippina, um, on his first wife. He, in, he ended up killing his mother, killing his first wife, killing his second wife. He's a really nasty guy as an emperor. He actually believed, they believe he went insane, and we ended up killing Christians and setting the fire of Rome and burning Christians at the stake, all that kind of stuff. That happens in the last, second half of his term. In the first half of his term as emperor is when Paul wrote Romans 13. Okay, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Now, at the end of his life, 
He's going to be executed probably by Nero. That's what we think. He's at the end of his life. Here's what he says in 1 Timothy 2. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people. By the way, Peter said the same thing. For kings and all those in authority. Why? That we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Why is that? This is good. This is good. This is what should be, we should be about as Christians. It pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Okay? Come to the knowledge of the truth. That's what we exist as a church. How else is the world going to learn about the one true living God? If you can't, how, where are they going to go? Their only place is to look right here. Are we the kind of people that live by biblical values, loving one another, caring for one another, forgiving one another, carrying one another's burdens? All the 57 one another's of the New Testament, yeah, that's what you get when you're an academic. You count things. It's a lot of them. Okay, let me conclude with this. Psalm 33:12 and Habakkuk 2:20. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he chose for his inheritance. See that? Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, and here's Habakkuk. Go back to Habakkuk. The Lord is in his holy temple. Don't need to protest violently. We don't need to yell and scream. Vote your conscience. Just base it on biblical values. That's all I ask. Okay? Thanks for showing me grace. I'm going to pray, dismiss you for communion. I'm going out the back door, catching the shuttle. We'll be here in five minutes. Take me to the airport to go bury my uncle. He went to be with the Lord. Good man. Father, thanks for your goodness. Thank you for uh, being a very good God. Oh, you have some demands. I get that. But you're filled with so much grace. All those people that rebelled against you and flipped you off, they did it with a really hard heart. But you show grace to those of us that try. Try to live out our faith in authentic ways. We are thankful that you were like that. And Father, like Nehemiah said, Lord, I am sorry for the sins of our nation, for the sins of my family, and for my own sin. Thank you for grace. So Lord, this Tuesday, I pray that you would, that you would speak powerfully to our nation. And Lord, whichever way you choose, I would pray that it would be a strong enough signal so we would know the truth about what people think and that we don't have to go through another whole year of litigation and all that. We're tired as a nation and we need the grace and the love which you promise and the joy and the blessings which you love to bestow. So help us as a nation, Father, to come together this week and to vote whoever your choice is into office. But know that we love you and care about you and what we desire to do, Lord, is to to bring your kingdom, your wonderful kingdom out to people who are hurting, lonely, tense. Lord, life has cost them so much. They've been discriminated against. Some of them are poor. That's what we desire.
Thank you once again for being so gracious to us. In your son's name, amen. Okay, please stand. Communion is across the hall. We're still practicing touchless communion. County Health has asked us to do that. So it's across the hall, and you get to hear the most wonderful words ever spoken. The body of Christ given for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. There are no better words. That's who we are to be. So enjoy the peace of Christ. That's why he died, for shalom, so you can rest. Go in peace. See you in a few days.